1: Now, decision-making is part of every product manager's toolkit, at least it really needs to be, and think about what it would mean to have effective guidelines or laws for better decision-making. You could make simple decisions more quickly and decisively. You could have a more solid defense and reasoning for complicated decisions. And you would also have less fatigue and stress related to making decisions, and decision fatigue is a very real thing. Those are important benefits of better decision-making. To help you create guidelines, our guest, Augustin LeBron, has learned the art and science of decision-making in a variety of high-stress and fast environments. He started his career as a design engineer and then, over time, moved to Wall Street, kind of a change, to be a trader. And he has placed his insights for decision-making in a book titled, The Laws of Trading, A Trader's Guide to Better Decision-Making for Everyone. And that includes us as product managers and leaders. His laws address issues in several categories, including risk, edge, cost, technology alignment, and adaptation. And we're going to discuss many of those. But first, you can find a summary of everything we talk about at theeverydayinnovator.com/235. That's where my written notes are, and those are a great way to remind you of all the points we discuss, and also to find links of whatever we share in the discussion. And for you to have an easy way of sharing the key points with others. I hope you make use of those notes. Again, find them at com slash 235. Now, let's talk about better decision making. Augustine, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: So when I found out about your background, I thought, wow, this is a really kind of a rare set of experiences that you've had. You began as a design engineer And as those of us have been in engineering environments, we are kind of used to this having inadequate, incomplete, uncertain information that we have to act on some of the times, right? We don't know everything that we want to know. And you took that experience, and then you moved to Wall Street and became a trader, which is just such a different sort of thing, in my mind at least, maybe not yours. And now you have your own company where, among other things, you help companies that rely on technology make better decisions. And I thought, oh, there's a thread here that could be really helpful to product managers helping us make better decisions when we are in the face of uncertain information. And you have put some of this information, you have these 11 laws of trading and a book now, The Laws of Trading, A Trader's Guide to Better Decision-Making for Everyone. So I thought, ooh, we can pick up something here to help us make better decisions too. Can you just tell us about that journey?
2: Sure. So the laws of trading first came out of teaching material that I put together to teach new traders. Um, and the thing that got me interested in writing a book for a general audience is uh, this thread that ties all of my professional experiences together, Together, which is um, decision-making. Huh. Uh, I claim that traders are some of the best decision-makers on earth because they have to be. Uh, and financial markets are the most competitive arena there is. Uh, So over the long run, the only thing that separates successful traders from the others is the quality of their decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, And the good news for product managers and other innovators is that the same ideas apply much more broadly anywhere that people need to make good decisions in competitive environments.
1: Yeah. The interesting thing about that trader environment and what I like, you know, frankly, when I read your profile, I first thought, oh, not someone I want to have talk to our audience, talk to everyday innovators, because I only caught the trader part which I thought was such a different environment. But then I saw that design engineer background. I went, oh, okay, there's something here. Because there was a book, you may have read it maybe a decade ago, I'm not sure, called Blink. Uh Yeah, it was written by a trader about how we can actually train our minds to make faster decisions in environments that are really turbulent and need to make them, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of what I try to do in this book is sort of give people the tools to be able to make decisions in the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think a lot of books related to product management sort of are good in an academic sense, in the sense that they tell you things that are useful. But then once it comes time to actually make a decision, um, you're kind of left struggling to remember what was the thing that I needed to think about. And that's kind of the idea of these 11 laws. They're easy to remember. They're easy to apply. Mm -hmm. And so they can guide your thinking when you're actually making decisions.
1: Yeah. And something I'm becoming more mindful of is kind of our mindsets in any given situation. Right. And sometimes it's just our mindset is limiting us where we know we need to make the decision, and if we can work through the information in a reasonable manner, we can actually make that decision. Not kind of. Sometimes we feel paralyzed, exactly, because of the weight of the decision and the outcome, and we just don't feel comfortable with the information that we have. Right,
2: and, and as I'm sure you know, you know, f- behavioral finance, behavioral economics has taught us over the last 20 years that humans are just an unreconstructed bag of biases, right? And the more we can look into ourselves, the more we can understand our mm-hmm. own motivations, our own thought processes, maybe the better we can uh, kind of avoid those biases.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And as product managers, we try not to be biased, or at least clear when we are making assumptions and our biases towards things. Mm -hmm. So let's get into your laws here. We won't have time to cover all 11. People can go check them out in your book for sure. But let's dive in. The first one that I want to talk about was risk because risk kind of is a lot of the picture of what we do in product management. Mm -hmm. And you characterize it as, in today's economy, take only the risk you're paid to take, hedge the others.
2: Yeah, so let's think of a simple example um, that's especially relevant these days. Um, Let's say your company is designing, uh, and I'm just going to pick a random thing, a new mobile phone case, okay? Okay? And so part of that job is sourcing the materials, negotiating with a manufacturer who's maybe offshore in Thailand or something. et cetera, et cetera. And so your success is defined by, obviously, whether the case sells well in the market. Um, And if you're good at designing and marketing, you'll do well. That's the risk you're being paid to take, the risk of understanding the market and being able to execute. But the thing is, you're also exposed to other risks. Um, So for example, let's say there's a big fluctuation in exchange rates between here and the manufacturing country. If you negotiated your contracts in Thai baht, you're exposed to those fluctuations. Um, You're exposed to a risk that you're not being paid to take. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one's buying your phone cases based on your ability to predict foreign exchange rates, right? That's crazy. So for example, a way to hedge that risk might be to negotiate these contracts in US dollars. That way you're sort of taking a variable out, a risk you're not being paid to take. Good example. So in today's economy, take only the
1: risks you're paid to take. Focus on what is actually in the picture and try to eliminate or control the other ones.
2: Right. And and the big picture is once you start examining what the source of your value is and what risks you're taking to create that value, you start to look for ways very naturally to mitigate all the other risks you're taking that you're not being paid to take. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And people with a project management background may do this a little bit more naturally, where we look at what is it we want to accomplish and then analyze, well, what are the unexpected things that could happen? And then pretty obviously you come up with changes to your project plans to just help you accommodate that. Mm -hmm. So good. Yeah. Good to be part of the picture. Okay. Another one you talk about is edge. And you you say, if you can't explain your edge in five minutes, you don't have a very good one.
2: Yeah. So I guess, I guess I should probably start by talking about what is an edge. Exactly, Um, And and at least in my view, an edge is something that you both know and can do that the marginal participant in the market doesn't and can't. Um, That's the source of an edge. And this is something that a lot of companies a little bit surprisingly have trouble articulating. Um, And it's surprising because it's not a new idea. Um, Like in that phone case example, And it's, again, an easy example just to illustrate, but the thing they know is what people want in a phone case, and the thing they can do is manufacture and sell them Mm -hmm. cost-effectively. But lots of new product companies, especially in the tech industry, which is where I spend most of my time, are actually confused about their edge. Like They think they have a great new idea, and often it really is a great idea, but they get seduced into thinking that only they could execute on the idea, or that if the product got traction that incumbents couldn't easily duplicate it or something like that. And, As product managers, we're trained to think of the customer and the product above all else. And honestly, sometimes I think we forget about the competition and how they adapt and change over time to what you do. Mm -hmm. That's really good. I think alignment with your brand and your strengths come into this picture.
1: And I often talk in terms of alignment and the importance of that. And we might characterize this. We've talked in the past on this podcast about the lean canvas as a helpful tool Mm -hmm. for product managers. Sure. And one of those blocks is your unique competitive advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of what sets you apart. And that's what this edge sounds like, right? What, what is it yeah. that you're good at that your competition is going to have trouble duplicating?
2: Exactly. And, and this gets back to the discussion about biases because it's it's easy to fool yourself about what it is that your unique special sauce is, right? You mm-hmm. might think to yourself, oh, I'm just smarter than everybody. Or I'm just like, I'm better at figuring out what the market wants. Well, I mean, the world's a competitive place, right? Like you probably need to look a little bit harder. Right. And sometimes this is soft things. You know, when I have the opportunity to help teams
1: and companies, I'll hear them express what they're really good at. And often they're really easily duplicatable things. But then they might talk about how they actually interact with each other and start talking about their culture and go, wow, you guys don't know how special that thing is you just talked about because other companies aren't doing that. They don't think that way.
2: I totally agree. I think this idea of culture and that being part of the special sauce is something that companies are slowly coming around Mm -hmm. to understanding as being a super important critical component. Yep, part of your edge.
0: I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week. Without travel. This is the system created by Chad based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at the slash RPM.
1: Okay, so we got risk edge. Next up I want to ask about costs. And you say if your costs seem negligible relative to your edge
2: you're wrong about at least one of them. Right. And so this, again, is an expression of the idea that the world is a competitive place. Uh, And one of the most common failure modes for new product development, at least as as I've seen it, is underestimating costs, Um, either development costs, because things always take longer than you think, um, or manufacturing costs, because manufacturing rarely goes smoothly, at least for a new product, or the cost of customer acquisition. Because mm. let's face it, there's a lot of competition out there for, for people's attention. Um, and the biggest one actually is simply how long products remain profitable. Um, and I think this is a segue into some very big picture ideas relating to technological progress in general. And again, just taking an example, like Kodak really should have crushed the digital photo revolution, right? Like 20 years ago, right. but they were still making money selling film. So they totally missed the opportunity cost of what they were not doing. And over the long term for successful companies, I think opportunity cost is really the biggest one. You always have to be looking for the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the book talks about how to structure your operations, like we were saying, so that opportunity costs are tangible instead of hidden. It's easy to sort of think about opportunity costs as this sort of ephemeral cloud that you don't really think much about, but you can make these opportunity cost ideas tangible so that you're actually sort of the, integrating them into your thinking. It's really good. I want to get
1: your thoughts on how vision plays into that as you're talking about that. Because where this comes up in my mind, I do this thing called the rapid product mastery experience with product managers and teams. Mm -hmm. And so I have the pleasure of working with organizations. And usually this is a team of like 10 people or so. And we go through nine weeks together. We meet 35 minutes a week virtually and go through an experience where they're getting grounded in new information and really interacting differently than they have in the past. It's just incredible to see the transformation that takes place. But we always start talking about mission, and vision, strategy, and culture. And a lot of these teams feel like their company doesn't have a stated vision. Like, okay, we know what we're about, what our purpose is, but we don't have a vision. And then when we dig into it, they're actually right that there hasn't been Mm -hmm an articulated vision for the company. And I see that as a really helpful tool for knowing where you're going to let you then make decisions about what to do and not do, which involves this opportunity cost thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This idea of vision, it's interesting. I, I think of this idea of vision as sort of providing guidance in the gaps, hmm. because it's, it's fairly straightforward to, you know, as a manager, tell people, okay, well, this is the plan we're executing to this plan, and that's that's kind of what we're doing. But the plan is never exhaustive, right? Like people have to be and are empowered to make decisions at all steps in in the process. Mm -hmm. And this idea of a vision is kind of as a guidance, right? Like in the absence of specific direction, what should I be thinking about? What's the big picture that I should be driving towards? And so I totally agree. You can't fully specify everything in a plan.
1: Yeah. And it helps us decide, you know, should we do the acquisition or not? Is, is that adjacent area a good one to get into or not? Mm-hmm. A little bit more purposeful when we have the vision. And that puts that cost picture in the perspective a little bit more. For sure. Okay. Risk, edge, costs. Another one is technology, which seems to kind of be at the heart of a lot of what you talk about, right? You know, helping mm-hmm. technology-centric companies yeah. make decisions. Tell us about this thing about, you know, how about mastering technology and data.
2: Yeah. So I think this is, in some sense, the important business story of the last five years uh, and probably will be for the next five years, too. Like, how do you use data, analytics, all of these new technologies to help drive product development, the evolution of business, profitability, all of these things? And, and the thing is, I feel like we've seen this before in financial markets because we've been living in this new world of data for the last two decades, at mm-hmm. least on our end. Um, people have this image of trading as a bunch of people shouting at each other and making hand gestures. But that hasn't been true for like 15 years. Um, the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, is actually just a big data center across the Hudson River mm-hmm. in Carteret, New Jersey. It's all machines. And the same goes for the for the trading houses in Chicago. They're all in a data center in Aurora, Illinois. Um, and so in the book, I talk about how to use data and technology the right way. I feel like trading has sort of been at the vanguard of how to think about tra- about data and technology. Um, and it's not some magical pixie dust to sprinkle over everything, um, but it's more like a component, I think an important component of decision-making. I find it funny sometimes. I hear that the, the hot new C-suite um, job title is chief data officer, right? right. And uh, I think of these positions as being totally backwards because the data isn't the primary thing. It's about the decisions. It should be mm. chief decisions officer, and data is just a part of it. That's a really
1: important perspective. It's a twist on the focus here, right? Is yeah. the technology is needed because we need data to turn that into information that we can now make decisions on. The the chief decision officer, I like that twist.
2: Yeah, no. And I think it's funny because I think a lot of companies get into this mode of, well, we have to get the data. And so they just run around and get whatever data they can. Mm-hmm. And I mean, data is everywhere, right? Like you can drown yourself in it. And if you're not careful about what it is you're going to go out to look for and how you're going to create processes to put that together, I mean, it's just not going to be useful for you. You're going to get the data, but it's not going to get you anything. Right.
1: Yeah. So all of us in organizations, you know, at a certain level, we can buy the same sort of information technology resources, right? It really comes down to what do we do with that information and how does that impact our entire system, which is integrated in all of these laws together.
2: Yeah. exactly and the other thing that's interesting is i feel like companies have swung kind of from one end of the pendulum to the other like it uh-huh. used to be the sort of this infallible leader whose um whose insights were always correct in spite of whatever data came around and now i think we've swung all the way to the other end where just do whatever the data says and i think uh what's abundantly clear in trading is that you need both right you need you need some prior beliefs you need some some insights that only human brains can gain uh-huh. um and then Test those insights, test those beliefs using the data that you can gather. It's sort of the merging of the two. The best of both worlds yeah. is where the good stuff happens.
1: Yeah, I like that and approach, right? It's the, like it's mm-hmm. the best of both worlds. And I think this is really important for product managers today because I think also for us, there's been a big swing towards too much reliance on data-driven decisions. To the point where sometimes we're just taking common sense out of the picture, right? I hear these case studies of well-intentioned people who did rather elaborate A-B testing to see what was the best path, where if they would have asked a different question in the beginning, common (laughs) sense would have dictated a much more reasonable path.
2: Sure. Makes sense.
1: So, Okay. So we're up to an A one here, alignment, which as I talked about before is central to the way I think about a lot of things that that's a big lever for us to get systems working better. And you
2: say the law is working
1: to align everyone's interest is time well spent.
2: Yeah. And I think I do agree this is particularly important for product managers. Like in some sense, I think the job, a lot of it is just like getting everybody on the same page, right? Um, On the finance side and trading, I think the most obvious example of bad incentives is brokers. Like the more you trade, the more commissions they make. But most retail investors need, need to trade less, not more, at least almost always. Um, And all the advertising that these brokers do is to incentivize you to trade more than you should. So that's a very straightforward example of a misaligned incentive.
1: Uh
2: Um, But like within organizations, these things exist too. Like is your product team, your engineering team, your management team, are they all incentivized by the same thing? Uh, In some of the work that I do with tech company clients, um, I have them play a game where we split the group of people, 20 to 30 people into, into these three groups engineering, management, uh, product management. Um, and each of them is incentivized by very natural things like engineers want to minimize costs. Management wants to have a highly profitable product and product managers want to ship units, right? Uh Um, very natural incentives. And when we play these games, the dynamic, that results, people start to realize that these very natural incentives end up feeding back on each other to create a totally dysfunctional culture. Uh Um, in spite of everybody's best intentions, um, because it doesn't happen on purpose. It just happens because people are responding naturally to their incentives. Um, In the book and in the consulting work that I do, I go into a lot of detail about what goes into building a culture where people's incentives are aligned. And obviously the the huge benefits, that result when you do align incentives.
1: Yeah. This is a really common discussion with product managers because we'll get a product project started and then find that the stakeholders involved don't have the same goals, sometimes even working at odds with each other. Mm-hmm. But the ability to get everyone on the same page improves the success of that project, You know how well that product is going to do. And fundamentally, it eases some of the frustrations that product managers often find ourselves in if everyone together is working towards the same common objective.
2: Absolutely. And a lot of this goes into when you actually get down into the weeds of it, uh, a lot of it goes into what it is that you measure, right? There's mm-hmm. the expression you make what you measure, right? Um, but the thing is, once you start measuring things that are easy to measure as proxies for things that are hard to measure, right. then you just start optimizing for the easy proxy. This is known as good hardball. Yep. Um, and so, you know, in engineering, the traditional thing is, um, okay, well, we want to drive our, our bugs to zero, right? okay, well, let's just start counting bugs, right? Like, just make sure we drive that to zero. And so, of course, what ends up happening is people just sub- stop submitting bug tickets because sure. that's the best way to avoid bugs. Yeah, we don't have them, so they're not
1: an issue anymore. You know, Wells Fargo's issue with uh, yeah. creating the false accounts, you know, Terrible example. Good example, but terrible situation of unethics running amok there. The funny one you might be familiar with, apparently sometime way back in the past of Ford, motor company on the assembly line, they wanted to track throughput performance of certain workers, of the metal workers. And so the quick, easy metric they had was to measure how much waste a metal worker was creating each day, right? So they just put it on the scale and measure how much waste there is. Well, when the line is being slow and it's completely out of your control and you're being paid on meeting a certain amount of waste poundage, what do you do? You take good sheet metal and you start (laughs) cutting it up and creating (laughs) waste, right? So not what we're after. right? So alignment, really important. I think that's a good one to spend attention on. Okay. And another A1, adaptation. And you shared the law here is if you're not getting better,
2: you're getting worse. Right. and, and. Like I said, we live in this competitive world. Um, so whatever it is that you're doing today that's working for you over time, that's going to become less profitable. Um, and it's sort of the Sisyphian task. And it makes you think, oh, what's the point of pushing this boulder up the hill, knowing it's just going to fall back down again? It sounds depressing. Mm-hmm. But consider this, like imagine a world where your ideas and products never become unprofitable. They never need updating and always do great in the market. And so every day you come in and every day you push the buttons and shuffle the papers on those ideas and those products. And there's no point in looking for the new stuff because the current stuff still makes just as much money as ever. I mean, for me, I can't imagine a worse hell than being stuck in a job that's destined to do the same thing over and over and over again. And the interest, the joy, the calling of the job is in that quest Mm -hmm. to improve. Those ideas you developed I mean they're not really yours, and this sounds like a crazy thing to say in this world of intellectual property and patents and litigation over this sort of thing, but I really think of ideas as more of a discovery than a piece of property in the sense of a boat or a sandwich right yeah. like the value that you provide is in the ability to do those new things to find them to develop them to to give them life um, it reminds me it reminds me of John F kennedy's quote. Uh, 1962, about the uh, Apollo moon program, which Mm. I I think about a lot. We chose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that really summarizes the task in front of us.
1: And I think that's something that also calls product managers into product management, right? It's this desire to maybe have, have a bigger role in the organization, impact the bigger picture some. But to do something that hasn't been done before, Mm -hmm. you know, on the small scale, maybe that's just making an improvement to a product, adding new value that did not exist before. On the bigger scale, for some of us, it's bringing something new into the world that the world hasn't seen. And that's really, really exciting to be a part of. So, okay, that's very cool. So we covered, you know, about half of the ones in the book. Is there another law that you want to make sure we don't miss before we move on to other things?
2: So there's a law about... Um, that I have about kind of what could possibly happen. Um, and the law basically says um, impossible ha- things end up happening fairly often. Um, and of course, it doesn't mean that things are actually impossible. It's just that we thought they were impossible. But there's a corollary to the law, which is that enough people relying on something being impossible and makes that thing more likely huh. uh, in a sort of perverse feedback sort of way. Um, I think. The best example of this is kind of in the in the housing mortgage crisis from 2007, 2008, huh. where basically everybody who was writing these mortgages and, and, um, and underwriting these loans kind of assumed that across the United States, home prices couldn't go down all at once. Uh, and so what they did is they sort of distributed their mortgages across the country and more people lending in these more aggressive ways kind of incentivized people such that if there was any ever any problem in some corner, it would sort of create a contagion to other corners. And so the act of assuming that things couldn't go down across the country all at once created the conditions, the feedback loop that actually made it happen. And I think you see this sort of all over the place when you actually start to look for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good example. And I don't know
1: why this popped into my mind as a connection to that, because I frankly, listeners, I don't think this connects well, but I'm going to share it anyhow. <laughs> And maybe it's just the connection between alignment and some of the things we've talked about, try to adapt to your market. Sometimes in ways that don't work well, Memorex, who was known for making audio cassettes, right? The things that we used to use back in the 80s, 90s, it has been some time now. I remember. They uh, thought, we'll take our expertise in plastics and manufacturing and apply that to new areas. Mm -hmm. And one thing they got into was disposable razors thought, hey, we, we can make a better disposal razor than others because we're really good at, at plastic manufacturing. It was just incredibly inconsistent with their brand. right? And and we don't think of Memorex as razors, and they removed it from the market <laughs> six months later because no one else did either. And like I said, it doesn't tie in nicely to th- this thing of what the impossibility that might happen. But I'm sure no one going into that thought, oh, we're going to fail because obviously we're good at manufacturing plastics. We'll come up with something that people will like.
2: Right. Exactly. Right. It goes back to this idea of like, what is your edge? Yeah. Like the manufacturing part certainly is part of it. Right. right. But it's not all of it. Like right. there's this other stuff too. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that alignment with your brand and what you're known for your core. Exactly. Companies. So really good. As listeners know, I always love a innovation quote. What did you bring for us? And also tell why you brought that one, why that one's important to you.
2: Yeah. So I think it, it's related to what we were just talking about, about adaptation. The thing I always try to remind myself is Um, most people think progress happens naturally. Um, innovators know they need to make it happen. Hmm. Um, and I think, so this, this is basically paraphrasing, uh, Peter Thiel, who I think is one of the most important thinkers on the subject. He he was a founder of eBay among other things. Um, and he points out that most people see progress, the progress that's happened in, let's say the last 150 years since the industrial revolution, um, and take it as kind of just a fact about the world. Things progress, things evolve, they mostly get better, and that's just the way it is. But it's not. It takes effort. It Mm -hmm. takes insight and risk-taking and innovation and failure and all of those things. Innovators are the ones that recognize the importance of human agency, of their own agency, Mm -hmm. uh, in making that progress happen.
1: I like that, our role in that.
2: And when we look back on innovations, a lot of things actually happen as
1: step functions, not this nice continuous Moore's Law evolution thing. But in most industries, there's some step function that takes place. And it's because we kept beating our head against a wall,
2: trying to make things better. And
1: then we finally break through it. And now we do move to the next level.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. It's very discontinuous. It's not like, oh, There's kind of two different kinds of innovation in some sense, right? Mm -hmm. There's sort of the evolutionary innovation, which is just, okay, we have something, we're just going to sort of grind on it and make it it progressively better. But yeah, there's that other kind that we we don't really know very well how to make it happen, Mm -hmm. but it's that revolutionary kind of innovation, the thing that came out of nowhere. Yep. good quote. Thanks for sharing that with us. Mm So this book is out and The Laws of Trading,
1: A Trader's Guide to Better Decision-Making for Everyone. We talked through some of the laws, more details and examples in the book. How can people find out if they want to get their hands on that and also just find out more about the work that you do?
2: Yeah. So uh, the book has a website. The website is uh, www.lawsoftrading.com. I sort of go through the laws. Um, There's some useful examples there to kind of keep people thinking about these things. Um, and so encourage you to have a look there and there's links there, obviously to various online bookstores, Mm -hmm. whichever one you like. Um, and so that's kind of the beginning of the the conversation for me. Um, I think the thing that I, that I'd like to see out of this is more of a conversation about sort of how these ideas can relate to things that aren't about trading. When I first started writing the book, I thought, oh man, am I just going to write another book about trading? Um, and that kind of felt limiting and depressing in some sense. Um, There's lots of books about trading uh, out there. Most of them are either kind of scandalous things, like things that happened a long time ago, or they're things that claim to teach you how to make money in the markets, which I think if you read my book, will show you why those are almost always worthless. Uh, I mean, why would somebody teach you a trade that makes money, right? Like that's just making their own life harder for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I wanted to write a book that sort of tip these ideas Uh, in other directions. And so, yeah, I just want to start a conversation with with people across the world.
1: Yeah. And I always think as innovators, product managers, our heart is innovation doing something new, creating new value. We appreciate learning from other disciplines. And I like how you went from that engineering background into the trading world. But now that you're coupling those laws that you learned in trading to helping us make decisions in any arena, but specifically for us decisions in our product work.
2: Yeah, and I think the the thing you mentioned there about um, kind of bringing people together is something that I learned sort of every job that I've had. Um, This notion of there being a lone genius in the corner coming Uh up with great innovations, I mean, maybe that worked 100 years ago. It doesn't seem remotely relevant to the experiences that I've had. I mean, great ideas come from the combination of different people, different backgrounds, different ideas coming together in these good organizations, well-structured organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of the message that I want to maybe put out there. It's like, we can do this. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. The lone genius is a myth that takes people working together, often
1: with very different ideas working together, uh, come up with something that is truly new and valuable at the same time. This is really good. I appreciate the information. I'll make sure that that link, thelawsoftrading.com is in the show notes and other resources there for everyone to get a summary of what we talked about. Augustine, thank you so much for the information and spending time with us.
2: Thanks, Chad. I really enjoyed it.
1: Had a great time. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find a written summary of all those great key sites that Augustine shared with us at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 235.
0: Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit the everydayinnovator.com.